Imagine, if you will, going to bed at night. It's a normal night. You don't expect anything out of the ordinary. Maybe you don't sleep restfully. I've had many a nights like this. Yeah, maybe your sleep is disturbed and you can't quite understand why. And, and maybe bad dreams happen that night. And bad dreams plague you for a while thereafter. And then you talk to someone. You start telling the story and you you have memories of, of an event that you can't even imagine. You can't fathom it. You have memories of an event of, of being taken out of your bedroom. Sometimes straight through a wall, sometimes through a window, sometimes walked out by entities that you can't even recognize, alien creatures, and, and you're taken aboard a spacecraft, you're poked and prodded, experimented upon in all sorts of unimaginable ways, and and then when it's all over, you're sort of discarded, returned back, and and for some people this happens multiple times, for some people it happens just once, but the phenomenon of alien abduction has been documented you know, in, in modern history since the late 50s, early 60s, but abductions of, of any kind have been happening almost throughout all of humanity's history. There, there are stories going back forever. But just imagine being taken from your safety of your own home in your sleep by aliens and experimented upon. I mean, why? Why why come to this planet to just poke and prod? And, and maybe there's a reason for it. Maybe there's a reason that they do these things. But the people who, who have had these experiences, who believe they've had these experiences, uh, sometimes, you know, suffer for the rest of their lives with the repercussions of what happened to them. So tonight we're going to, we're going to touch on the alien abduction phenomenon. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close minded. We become fearful to be deceived. Still. We desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten, and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. What I talked about in the intro there, you know, we talk about the alien phenomenon. Thousands, millions of people maybe have, have experienced the alien f- abduction phenomenon. And because to them, there's, it, there's so many that don't come forward, yeah. uh, you know. Well, like any paranormal, you know, unusual, they don't want to come forward. They don't want to be ridiculed. There are people that are professionals who could very well risk their livelihood by coming out Absolutely. and saying, hey, I had this experience. Yeah. So, but of course, what it boils down to is these people believe they've been kidnapped by aliens. And, and uh, quite a few in the process, believe they were subject to psychological and physical experimentation. You know, I, I don't want to kind of make light of it, but you always hear about the anal probe. Uh, anal probing. Taking of blood samples, bone samples, hair, b- other bodily fluids, you know, forced to do, you know, certain types of acts to see how you're going to react. Uh, psychological things where they get inside your mind. Sexual reproduction organs yeah. and everything you can imagine. Now, it's it's estimated that about... Two and a half percent of the United States population reports having had an alien abduction. And again, like you said, with the numbers probably would be higher than that with the, the number of people who wouldn't want to report it. Truly believe that. Yes, definitely. Most scientists and doctors will try to explain it away with a number of factors. Um, some would, would say the person's suggestibility, false memory syndrome. Some people don't recall the experience until they're under hypnosis. And some people feel that maybe the person conducting the session leads them down a certain way, starts asking certain right. questions to get the answers they want. Uh, sleep paralysis, if you've ever experienced that, I personally have on a couple of occasions. Well, the first two times it happened, it was a very, very frightening experience. I didn't know what was happening. It's happened since then as an adult, uh, but I find if I sleep in an uncomfortable position, for example, say I fall asleep on the couch with my head on the armrest or something, it can trigger sleep paralysis episodes because I'm uncomfortable and my body's having a hard time transitioning into sleep or out of sleep, but you're asleep and you see things and, and it's, they're hard to explain. It can be quite terrifying. Some people believe that uh gaslighting or deception that someone in their life is actually doing things Messing to make with them believe. Them. Yep. And then of course, uh, psychological issues, you know, maybe you're mentally unstable. Maybe you've got a, an, an issue, um, certain forms of, of mental uh, health issues that would cause hallucinations or false memories. But, you know, it, it's it's apparently 
apparently has been happening for, for years and years and years now. Like I said, it didn't really come into prominence until the late 50s, early 60s. But, you know, once it became a thing, once people reported it for the first time, claims took off like 2,500%. Once the first claim came out. Well, and one of the first claims, and I think you've got a lot more information than I do, that would have been uh, the Betty and Barney Hill incident. There's actually one that happened before them. And and we'll get to that a little bit. I want to talk more about the phenomenon in general before we start talking about specific incidents. Uh, other things that happen when aliens abduct you, you know, beyond experimentation and, and torture, if, if you want to call it that, sometimes they uh, they do have a, a, a message for us. It's not always a negative experience. Uh, some abductees claim they've been warned against environmental abuses. Mm-hmm. Some claim they've been warned against the usage of nuclear weapons. Some cases there's interspecies breeding, so I guess you want to say it's a good bad thing. I guess it'd be up to you <laughs> if you want to be Kirk and bang an alien. That's you know maybe that's not a bad thing. Another thing I thought was interesting is uh, in doing some of the research, some of the abductions may literally be minutes or hours. However, there are some stories where months, years, even as much as a decade has passed from the time they were abducted. People thought I mean they were truly missing and then just reappear so most experiencers have common events and i'll go into a list of those here but is broken down by folklorist thomas e bullard uh he claims that most abductions feature you know certain common things common themes number one the the capture the abductee is somehow captured by the aliens and typically incapable of resisting the alien like the sleep paralysis, the paralyzation, sleep paralysis something along those lines. Uh, and they're taking from their typical Earth-bound surroundings onto an alien spacecraft. I've read multiple cases of alien abduction. Sometimes this goes through a window, like I said. Sometimes you literally go straight through physical barriers. Sometimes it's as simple as them coming in, waking you up, walking you out to the craft. You know, the old-fashioned way, if you will. Number two, you have the examination of the procedures. Typically involves invasive physiological and psychological procedures. Uh, simulated behavioral situations, training and testing, sexual liaisons again, part of you know testing our, our species, figuring out how we breed, genetics. Uh, there is a theory that the little gray alien that, that, that is fairly common in these is actually incapable of reproduction, and so that is why they come to us for that. Hmm. Uh, conference, number three, conference. Abductors communicate with the abductee. Sometimes it's uh, direct conversation with with them specifically. Uh, sometimes it's via telepathy, sort of not one on one, but like in a a general like in your brain kind of you know giving these these thoughts. Typically, they use the native language of the abductee, so they can be understood, which makes sense if you're going to talk to somebody. Adjust talk their to them language. Yep. Yeah. Uh, number four, the tour. The abductee is usually given a tour of the abductor's vessel. Uh, sometimes to the point of actually being shown like a window so they can look out and see that they are not on Earth anymore. Trippy. Number five is the loss of time. Most abductees will rapidly forget their experience, uh, either as a result of fear, medical intervention, or possibly both. And so you have this missing time, which I don't want to discount anybody's claim. Sometimes when you're really, really tired, you kind of do slip off a little bit. Right. Maybe you do Zone lose out. some time. I was watching TV with my kids yesterday and, and opened my eyes as the episode was getting over. And I'm like, it was like an hour long TV show. And I don't remember <laughs> anything that happened. So well, I don't I, think I was abducted, though. I think that kind of goes back to a lot of the TV movies where you'll see like uh, a car out on a road and a beam. But like the time will stop yeah. exactly on the clock radio. Oh, it's like a, a major plot point in the first episode of the X-Files. Yeah, yeah. Uh, number six, the return. The, uh, the abductees return to Earth, occasionally in a different location from where they were taken, usually with new injuries or, or you know, markings on the body and or, and or disheveled clothing to show that there was something that happened. Number seven, what they call theophany, which was not a word I was familiar with, but the abductee may experience a certain profound sense of love afterwards. They, they describe it as a high similar to those induced by certain types of drugs. From a mental perspective, some describe it as possibly Stockholm Syndrome-esque. You so, feel so a are love. you saying like the love of what occurred to them or like they were more loving towards family and friends once no, they like returned? towards the experience. Okay. So, okay. And then eight would be the aftermath where the, abdu- where the abductee must then cope with the psychological, physical, and social effects of the abduction. You know, we talk about the psychological, mental part of it, the physical part, whatever 
the aliens may have done to you. But then uh, the social aspect we've touched on a little bit. You know, if you talk about it, do you get ostracized from the people that know you? You know, depending on your job, you could potentially lose your job, your employment, find yourself in a dire straits just simply talking about it. Right. You're bound to be ridiculed, let's be honest. Most oh, people yeah. aren't going to believe in this. Uh, I I talk about alien implants on when we, typically when I have this conversation. You know, there are people that have found strange objects located under the skin. Uh, typically around the ear is is a place that seems fairly common. So I have a little bump on the back of my ear, and uh, so I've always joked that, that that's my alien implant. My son actually has a little tag on his ear, like a little skin, like a little bump thing, and I, I like, it, it's a genetic thing. I have the same thing on, on my left side, and I like to tell him that that's where the alien put the implants. And, you know, when he's little, that freaked him out. Now that he's older, you know, he doesn't think much about it. But, you know, alien abduction, the abduction phenomenon has been part of our pop culture, you know, since the 50s and 60s. With things like the Twilight Zone and the the Outer Limits, and then you know X-Files, jump up to course. the X Files and and whatnot. But like I said earlier, abduction phenomenon you can trace that back to face stories, uh, changelings, things like that. I think we talked about it when we did our episode about the Fey. We mm-hmm. we did the comparisons for the purposes of this episode. You know, who's to say it wasn't aliens back then? You know, we just didn't know how to comprehend that idea. So anything that wasn't human was obviously supernatural in origin. That kind of goes back to our gin or genie episode where the paranormal and we said the same thing. Maybe we should start asking for gin. Yeah. So, yeah, depending on the context of what episode we're doing, you know, we're either talking about aliens, the supernatural, gin, the fey, whatever you want to, whatever road you want to go down. But it's, it's crazy to think that, like, imagine being in the safety of your own home and then suddenly knowing that you've had this experience. Another thing I stumbled across and and you didn't touch upon, but, um. With alien abductions, there seems to be no precursor of we want the weakest, we want the strongest, we want the smartest. You know, it seems to be, if anything, more the ones that are abducted are strong physically, uh, doctor, and, you know, intelligent people, which kind of goes against the typical scientific world of scoffing it all off saying well these people were had mental issues and that's why that's not always the case actually it's quite the opposite it seems that a lot of the people that are now starting to come forward are you know military pilots uh police officers doctors all walks of life all races all religions well at at one point in time that was how the experts tried to downplay it. They would say, oh, it was the uneducated. It yes. Was, you know, for you know, for lack of a better, it was trailer park people, you know, like the, the country boy that's out drunk on his tractor and he falls off his tractor and he wakes up two hours later. Yep. Well, he's clearly been abducted by aliens. Yeah, right? he bumped his head because he had too many Coors lights or they, whatever. They tried to downplay it as saying, oh, it was only happening to this certain group of people. But like you said, now in the modern time frame, you have police officers and military personnel, people who's typically people whose judgment you should be able to trust and whose story you know you should be able to say okay this guy is this and so i believe what he said and even the physical aspect i mean like football players muscle bound people not easily subdued you know yeah it's it's kind of going against that early philosophy to you know to blow it off and let's ridicule it and and again the fairly common descriptor of the aliens you have that typical little gray alien with the big black eyes that seems to be sort of a universal fear for humanity. And I just want to talk about that for a moment. We talk about universal fears of humanity. There's a reason why we're supposed to be afraid of these things, right? So you start thinking of the most common fears that people have. You know, we're afraid of snakes. Okay, well, snakes bite and they're poisonous. Probably be a good idea. Spiders, probably spiders bite and they're poisonous. You know, good idea to be scared of them. Heights, well, if you fall, your body's fragile. It's going to break. It's a good idea to be afraid of that. So at some point in time in our history, there's a primal reason why we're afraid of creatures with big black eyes. Mm -hmm. And so there are those experts in the field that speculate that alien abductions have been happening for a very long time. And there's a reason why we're afraid. Uh, The same goes with uh, the Uncanny Valley. Things that look almost human, but you can tell they're not. Well, quite often aliens would appear as as very human-like, but still not entirely human. Um, yeah, too the, slender, for example, well, a little the, bit too in tall, the phenomenon, distorted. You, you have the Nord alien, which is typically a little bit too tall, a little bit too physically perfect, 
even that like the platinum blonde hair that's perfectly arranged you know the eyes are a perfect blue you know they they look human but they're not human they're they're just too perfect and then let's not forget the lizard men well yeah you have lizard men well those are all you we could do an entire episode (laughs) on just the lizard men and the the you know government invasion by the lizard men and things like that but what i mean by that is you know the humanoid body but you know with a lizard-esque face some even having tails and that's that's sort of thing so you know the alien phenomenon like i said today we're just going to talk about abduction and honestly i think we're just going to focus on sort of the earlier days of the alien abduction phenomenon but I remember as a child, you know, I would read stories about alien abductions and just be terrified by the idea. And when these people tell their stories, they are frightening stories. The, yes. the idea that these things could happen, just just crazy scary. Have I ever been abducted by aliens? God, I hope not. I don't have any repressed memories, I hope. But you do have that spot behind I your ear. I got that spot on my ear. But, you know, so a lot of people think this phenomenon started with Betty and Barney Hill. And, it, and really, modern day, you can almost say that. But there was at least one account that, that did gain some, some popularity before that, and that is the story of Antonio V.S. Boas, uh, who was a Brazilian farmer. On October 16th, 1957, he reported being abducted by aliens, or, or he, he, he was allegedly abducted by aliens on that day. You know, Later on, he would go on to tell his story and sort of become the first popular modern-day account of alien abduction. This is interesting because I was not familiar with this one at all. Yeah, so he was working at night. To avoid the heat of the day, obviously, he was plowing fields near São Francisco de Salas in Brazil when he saw what he thought was a red star in the night sky. So he started watching this red star. It was unusual. He would wonder what it was, why it was there. Uh, when it began to approach him and grow in size, he immediately became aware. This is no star. Something else is going on here. Uh, it revealed itself to be a circular-shaped craft with a red light on its front. So like a, like a headlight, I guess, maybe. Uh, It descended into the field that he was working in and landed on three sort of telescoping legs, which does seem to be kind of common for alien spacecraft. Right. At this point, he decided, well, like any good human being would, I think he's going to get the hell out of there. He's going to (laughs) run for his life. So first he decides he's going to leave on the tractor. Obviously, you're already on the tractor, so you throw it in gear and you lay on the gas. He makes it just a little while, the lights and the engines, the whole thing dies. Just dead as a doornail. Very typical. Can't turn the key. Nothing when, nothing when he turns the key. So he decides he's going to continue on foot. So let's be honest. That's, you know, get out of there. Plan He takes B. off running. He's, he, suddenly he's seized by a five-foot-tall humanoid. He described it as wearing gray coveralls and a helmet. So the eyes were small and blue in color. And the being made noises like barks or yelps instead of speaking when it tried to communicate to him. Interesting. Uh, three other beings joined the first one to grab him and like subdue him. So they're all holding him, grappling with him, you know, keeping him from running off. They drag him back into the spacecraft. So once he's inside, they strip him of all his clothing, which again, kind of common. Yep. They cover him head to toe with some sort of strange gel, which, Hey, this could be the beginning of a fun time. Who knows what's going on? (laughs) Kinky. Then he's taken to another room where they take blood samples from his chin. From his chin. It's sort of a weird place. Uh, Then he's taken to another room where he's left to sit for about a half an hour or so on his own. Well, very typical for a a doctor's waiting room. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Then the aliens pump some sort of gas into the room, which makes him violently ill. And shortly after, he's joined by another humanoid. Okay, I don't care if you cover him with Vaseline or not. This is not a fun experience (laughs) at this point. Well, Hang on a minute. He's joined by another humanoid. Oh, okay. This one is female. Very attractive. Okay. Completely nude. Oh, okay. She's the same height as the abductors. She's got a small pointed chin, large blue cat-like eyes. She's got long white hair. I guess he compared it to like a platinum blonde. Right. With, and I thought this was kind of a strange detail to throw in there, but why not? (laughs) Bright red underarm and pubic hair. I mean, you might as well describe all of it, right? Okay. So he's strongly attracted to her, and the two do what typically happens in these encounters, and they have intercourse. The nasty. She, he noted, made a note that although he did try to kiss her, she would not kiss back, but instead would nip him on the chin. Where they drew blood. Well, yeah. I mean, there is that, uh, uh. that connotation there. So when they're done, I guess she motions to her belly and then gestures up in space. Which he took this to mean that she wouldn't raise their newly conceived baby in space. 
Now, how she knew she was pregnant beyond me, I don't think he didn't say anything about any pregnancy test at that point. <laughs> However, he did feel that she was relieved that the task was over. She and didn't, so, didn't seem to enjoy it then. Yeah, he was, he actually got upset by this. He felt that he was, he felt like he was being used as a, a good stallion, in his own words, by the aliens. Well, she did refuse to kiss him, just yeah. kind of <laughs> nipped him on the chin, like, no, 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 this is, this is hard enough for me to go through, yeah. So, he was then given back his clothing. They took him on a tour of the vessel to, you know, let him look around, show him their, their technology, I guess. Uh, he was then escorted off the ship where he watched it take off while glowing very brightly in the night sky. Uh, and then when he turned home, he'd found that four hours had passed since he had, had, you know, since anyone had last seen him. Very interesting story. You have a lot of those, those commonalities, the lost time, the tour of the ship had later medical examination determined that he had been, um, exposed to a very large dose of radiation and he suffered the effects of radiation sickness for quite a while and then would have unexplainable red they weren't even described like protrusions almost as if there was something under the skin that would come and go in random places around his body huh. which is not like i mean again you know would associate maybe cancer with being exposed to radiation, radiation but yeah. that, they wouldn't disappear on their own but yeah he got very very sick for a while and and was you know suffered from nausea and dizziness and you know vision problems i mean everything you would associate with a with a large dose of radiation and when he did tell his story the idea was of course i i guess the 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 people of brazil sort of embraced it They're like oh man this guy's been abducted by aliens and, and the government even played it off as like oh he was a small you know small he was a, a poor, uneducated peasant, you know, and he obviously didn't have exposure to, to books and whatnot on TV and movies. So, you know, the fact that he's told us this story means that he must have really experienced it. There's no way he could so have been. So it's kind of embraced and celebrated then. Well, he owned a tractor. And apparently in that time. That was quite an that was That was, you know, you had good money if you owned a tractor. So the, the cultural argument that like, oh, he'd never been exposed to anything and he, where would he have heard of the story? Well, the counter argument was he, he was probably, he actually was probably kind of well off for the time frame in Brazil. So it's a possibility he may have had television or, or been able to go to the movies or something like that. But yeah, the idea that he was just a simple farmer and he had this story and, and it kind of lays the groundwork for the future of, of alien abduction tales. So. It, it is, is kind of interesting. His, his really does become the first alien abduction story that sort of uh, takes off. So, As we had kind of alluded to earlier, uh, I felt one of the first uh, abductions, and, until Bill corrected me with this, but probably maybe a little bit better known, was uh, the Betty Barney Hill incident. And that was on September 20th, 1961. Yes. Uh, I don't have a lot of details on this, so I, maybe you can yeah. kind of uh, elate to it, but it was the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Uh, they said they saw a bright light come out of the sky. Two hours later, they popped up in their driveway with no memory of what had happened at all. Yeah, no, their story is is similar in some uh, respects to Boas's story. But yeah, they're Betty and Barney Hill. Just to lay some groundwork to let you know something about the Betty and Barney Hill, about the hills. Barney was a postman and Betty was a social worker. Barney's job required, I think, a, they said a 120-mile round trip. That's a lot. From where he worked, where he lived. Wow. Betty was a social worker, and I think she had over 100 children that she was responsible for in the region that she was supposed to attend to as many as possible on any given day. So they were very, very busy people. Sound like it. They were a biracial couple at a time when, when things like that were not as widely accepted. So obviously they had their issues with that. You know, like I said, they traveled for their jobs. They were actually on vacation at the time. They had traveled, I want to say, out of state. When they ran out of money, they didn't budget well, they didn't have enough cash on hand, and this was before the days of the ATM. You couldn't just stop somewhere and get some more cash or use your card, you know. So they were actually returning home and had been driving for quite some time when they when this experience happened. But they were, uh, they were driving overnight. They couldn't afford to stay in a hotel. They didn't have enough money to stop, so they just had to drive straight through and go home. So on September 19th, 1961, uh, on an isolated road traveling through the White Mountains uh, on a cloudless, what they described as a cloudless night, they had stopped for coffee at a diner at around 10 p.m. and had done the math and figured, oh, they'd be home by about 3 a.m. So after after having coffee, they get back in the car and they continue home. Now, as they're driving at a certain point, Betty looks out the passenger side window and she sees a bright object that seems to be following the car. So she's mm-hmm. a little concerned by this. She pulls out a pair of binoculars that they have with her and she's watching it. 
And that's when she, she tells Barney, she goes, this is a flying saucer that's chasing us here. And Barney's a little concerned, terrified even. So, you know, they, they're driving, they drive towards a narrow mountainous stretch of road in an attempt to lose their pursuer, their figure, you know, the twists and the turns and the mountains and whatnot. They'll, they'll be able to get away from this. Finally, about one mile south of Indian Head, the object descends towards their vehicle, which causes Barney to stop right in the middle of the road. It's, it's like right on top. It's blocking their, their, their way forward, basically. Barney gets out with the binoculars, and he, he's going to get a better look at this. And he sees that, yeah, it is, in fact, some sort of spacecraft with what he described as a set of double windows. Now, he told Betty he could see there at least a half a dozen living beings inside this ship. Oh, wow. They're wearing some kind of uniforms, and they're looking straight at him. Now, obviously, he's using binoculars. So this is pretty darn close, yeah. especially back at that time frame with technology yeah. and binoculars. Get so, that good of a look. So all but one of these figures turns away from the window and starts working on some kind of panel in the background. But this one figure continues to stare at him. And at this point in time, Barney feels like he, this, this entity communicated with him. And in his mind, he basically gets the message, stay where you are and keep looking. Wow. So what are you going to do when that happens? Run. Barney turns to Betty and he's like, <laughs> they're going to capture us. So they start to move towards the car, at which point the, the craft moves directly over the car. The couple says they heard a series of loud beeps and then each one of them began to get drowsy and they sort of came over, you know, sort of haziness came over them and they sort of blacked out. Okay. At that point in time, a second series of beeps happens and then they return to full consciousness. They're sitting in the car. They're 35 miles down the road. They don't feel good. They feel kind of groggy. They feel like something's happened, but they don't know exactly what. So they go ahead and they finish traveling home. They get home at 5 a.m. And estimated they'd get there at three. So they've lost two hours hours. of time. Uh, And they can't account for that. They don't know what happened. They have no memory of it. They felt as if something terrible had happened to them. And they noticed that their clothes were a little rumpled. I think Barney's shoes were scuffed and the strap on his binoculars was broken. Even when they got home, he felt as if something had happened to him. So he goes in the bathroom to examine himself and he can't find any evidence. But I mean, he's got this feeling that something's happened to him. So for a little while, they just try to shake it off. Okay, something weird happened. We don't really know what. Did we see it? Did we not? At this point in time, even seeing the spacecraft is sort of hazy to them. I think I think in the early, before they really started remembering, they, they just recalled some sort of fireball in the sky. So they didn't even really remember the spacecraft at all. Well, a few days later, Betty starts having these nightmares. And in her dream, she remembers walking up the ramp of this craft. She remembers it now like she was sleepwalking. She remembers being separated from Barney. And she remembers being examined by the ship's occupants. And then Barney, one day, talking to a friend of his, describes this feeling. He's like, it, as a quote, one of a person who saw something he doesn't want to remember. So both of them, she's having these nightmares, and she feels like they're memories. He's got this feeling that something's happened to him, we but he saw this know before, what. the mind, the brain, yeah. basically protecting the body, you know, from remembering something that was traumatic. Yeah, yeah. So, so two years later, they, they visit a psychiatrist. They figure there's something going on. It's been going on for a while. Under hypnosis, they recount what happened that night, and they do remember. This short, is where it gets really weird. Yeah, they remember short gray aliens with big wraparound eyes that took them aboard their craft, probed them with needles. Uh, do you have? It sounds like you may have more there. Well, I I had that later on. They the couple then remembered, and I I believe it was after the hypnosis that they had actually traveled to Zeta Ricoli. I believe is the correct pronunciation. Uh, star system 39 light years from Earth. Reticuli. Reticuli. Okay. Zeta Reticuli. A star system 39 light years from Earth. Betty was even able at that time to draw a very astute and accurate detailed map of the sky uh, seen from that star, which I'm not sure if that's even a real location, but scientists seem to take a little bit more yeah. credit, you know, with that. So it meant something to someone with higher intelligence than I have. Uh, and it, it started to kind of say, whoa, okay, maybe these people didn't just fall asleep in the car, pulled off to the yeah. side of the road and lost track of two hours time. There, there was definitely something more here. Uh, the Hills would agree to a book deal. And then later in 1975, that book would be turned into a made for TV movie that aired on NBC in the two years after that movie aired on NBC, uh, alien abduction reports increased by 2,500%. Yeah. percent. Wow. Because really almost at this point in time, alien abductions had, were almost unheard of. Yeah. You had Boas's story, which was sort of 
it was out there, but it wasn't in the public eye as much as certain things. But the Hills were the first people to really come out there. And, and, and really, I would argue probably one of the most publicized, most popularized, whatever, alien abduction accounts until, uh, in my opinion, you get to Travis Walton. With the only other exception being maybe Whitley Strieber and his experiences, which I really didn't really get into because the more I read about Whitley Strieber, Strieber, however, you want to, however his name is pronounced, and, and I'm a, I think it's Strieber, he writes a lot of books about his experiences, but I tried to read those books. They are very... They're not an easy read as far as I'm concerned. And and he he's written a lot of fiction books about alien abduction in between. It's kind of hard to distinguish so sometimes. I'm, I'm not discounting his experience by any means, but I, as far as popularity goes, I think you have the, the Hills, and then I think you jump up to Travis Walton, who actually, was it in the 80s? That was a movie? Yes, um, come out Fire in the Sky. Fire in the Sky, and I actually remember watching that. I, I was I've, only I've like 10 years it. old at the time. I'm I've never seen age, it, which is but, weird. You'd think I would have by now. but you know, I. I have down uh, the Travis Walton a little bit of his story. I don't think we would do this podcast justice if we didn't address that. And, of course, that took place in Arizona uh, in 1978. The Travis Walton UFO incident was an alleged alien abduction of American forestry worker Travis Walton by a UFO in November 5th of 1975. Excuse me. If I remember correctly now. Mr. Walton does go back to that good old boy that we were talking about. He was a kind of, like you said, he was a forestry worker. He's kind of a country guy. Strong, physical I want to say type. maybe he'd been drinking a little bit at the time yes, with they, some friends. Yes, he was actually traveling uh, in a pickup with uh, part of his work crew. And from what I understand, they had kind of you know gotten off work, was driving home, maybe for the weekend even. And so, yeah, there was a few beers that were cracked you know, on the way home. Uh, but this was while he was still working in the Apache uh national forest near snowflake arizona now okay, no reference funny, to a, snowflake there well no i'm just saying it's funny there's a town called snowflake arizona when you know how, how much snow does arizona oh, get oh. i thought <laughs> you were going to reference in today's society the reference of snowflakes oh, yeah. and you know all of I, this. I don't go in for that snowflake stuff yeah 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 so snowflakes have many different meanings but, <laughs> um they're in arizona now walton was missing for five days and six hours uh, after days of searching with scent dogs and helicopters walton says he reappeared by the side of the road uh, near heber arizona the walton case uh, received mainstream publicity and remains one of the best known alien abduction stories probably to this day however of course there are those scientific skeptics like always that's going to say it's a hoax now part of his work crew i guess you would say uh, he actually calls them even the band of brothers. Uh, so, I, I mean, you know, how it is, you're especially out in a desolate area and you're working, you kind of got to rely on this guy to have your back and yeah, you got you, his. Yeah, you got to pretty close with those dudes. Uh, some of these guys went back and tried to find him themselves digging through, they said, piles of uh, like limbs and branches, thinking that surely maybe he'd just crawled underneath there to seek refuge or whatever. I mean, they took this very personal. Uh, it was a very frightening experience. In 1978, as Bill alluded to, Walton wrote a book about his uh, alien abduction. Uh, it was titled The Walton Experience, uh, which then was adapted into the 1993 movie Fire in the Sky. So that's why I do remember reading it. It was much later. Let's see, you, I guess the older, you, it. the older you get, the harder it is to keep track of time. I would have sworn that was made in the 80s. So. Now, according to Walton and a number of the other members from the logging crew on that November 5th, 1975, he was working with a timber stand improvement crew there in the, the forest while riding in a truck with six of his co-workers. They allegedly encountered a saucer-shaped object, gold in color, hovering above the ground at approximately 110 feet. Now, again, they stress, you know, a lot of times it's easy to throw out a I was 100 foot away or 200 foot away. These guys working in the forestry were quite accustomed to heights of trees and different things. So 110 feet was the amount that was given, making a high-pitched buzzing noise. Now, he stated in an interview the craft had a metallic color to it, as I had referenced gold, which is a little bit different from, from most uh, stories that we hear, and almost entirely glowing itself with light. Now, Walton claims that after he left the truck and approached this object, because it had come around, kind of spun around in, in the front uh, highway away from them, he was the first out of the truck. You know, everybody was kind of creeped out, scared. This guy just 
gets out of the truck and he's like, I want to see this. I mean, he runs, not just walks, he runs towards it. Uh, as he's running towards it, this beam of light just suddenly appears from the base of the craft and he says, knocked him unconscious. I believe that's the iconic poster you've seen even where he's like caught in that beam of light. Yeah, just kind of like suspended, yeah. his arms kind of stretched out. Now, the other six men, they were frightened and, and supposedly turned and drove away now that, those are good friends that's good friends <laughs> later that story kind of changes to the point where some of them even got out of the truck they were trying to you know yell at him get up you know run get back here and hey eric please don't let me be abducted by aliens i'm gonna drive off and leave your ass i'm sorry no <laughs> i got your back brother <laughs> uh walton claimed that he he awoke after this beam of light hit him and paralyzed him in a hospital-like room, and he was being observed by three short, bald creatures. He claimed that he fought with them until after a human wearing a helmet led Walton to another room where he totally blacked out. And three other humans, or at least now appearing as humans, as, as Bill kind of talked about possibly, put a clear plastic mask over his face. Walton has claimed that he remembers nothing else until he found himself walking along a highway five days later with the flying saucer departing above him. There were other fragmented memories that he shares in the book and stuff later that as he was walking or running towards the spacecraft with his buddies in the truck, that he heard the pitches and the tones changing. So he did get scared and he actually dove behind a log off the side of the road. Uh, but it was to no avail. The light beam kind of transferred off and, you know, ended up taking him to the same place. Now, Walton actually went on the Joe Rogan podcast uh, later on in an interview, which I watched. He has uh, admitted that since then, he has seen other UFO crafts, including the Black Triangle version, as he referred it to, as well as Glowing Sphere version. He has stated that uh, others that uh, worked for the government at the time, in particular uh, Area 51, that contacted him privately and explained that they had recovered and helped work on reverse engineering a ship similar to what he describes during that, that time frame. Now, he says that he, that gave him a lot of merit that, you know, he said this entire time, I wasn't sure what I saw. He goes, I was constantly doubting myself, but when government officials reached out, but he did say they asked to be not mentioned, well, yeah. but they kind of give him that personal credibility, which he said, I really think I needed mentally. Now, Walton said after that light beam struck him, you know, as I mentioned, he saw this fallen log, he dove for it. The story kind of changed a little bit from there. But again, maybe he started remembering bits more. He describes that as a blast of energy that encompassed his entire body. He said, the best I can describe it was I felt static electricity. I felt like the hair on the back of my neck, the head all stood up. He said, I've got to talk to a lot of people through the years. And that area especially is prone for lightning strikes. And some of the park rangers and stuff uh, were trying to kind of help him through this. And they said, what you're describing is actually like possibly being struck by lightning. So there was a phase of time when, did I just get struck by lightning? Was that all there was to the story? Well, there's actually some video on the internet, but prior to being struck by lightning, when that area becomes charged, you do get that staticky feeling. I mean, to the point where your hair will actually. And you would obviously hear buzzing and yeah, ringing noises in your ears. Yeah, definitely. And then, of course, the next thing that happens is, you know, gift of God, I guess, and just zap. Yeah, yeah. Now, in the days following Walton's UFO claim, the National Enquirer awarded Walton and his co-workers a $5,000 prize for the best UFO case of the year. I thought that was kind of From the National odd. Enquirer. From the National Enquirer. Uh, after they were said it, to have... The, old, the National Enquirer wants to know. Yes. There's a, a little aside here. And uh, Weird Al does a parody song called The Midnight Star, and it's one of those tabloid-type papers. And they're keeping Hitler's brain alive inside a jar. <laughs> but it's very much like the type of the aliens are here and will tell you where they are. Well, the National Enquirer awarded them after they all passed polygraph tests. And again, I say passed. The administrator of the Enquirer and the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization, or APRO, after all of this, then they were deemed... Not only did you bring us the best story, but we're going to give you $5,000 for bringing us because you've 
you know, you've passed the, the polygraph test. You've passed all these tests. Now, Walton, his older brother, and his mother were described by the Navajo County, Arizona sheriff as longtime students of UFOs. Uh, so obviously we're, we're getting some scoffing here. The sheriff did not seem to be a true believer. UFOologist Jim Ludwith said uh, for five days, the authorities thought he'd been murdered by his co-workers <laughs> even, and then was returned. All the co-workers who were there saw the spacecraft and they all took polygraph tests. They all passed except for one. And that one was inconclusive. It wasn't necessarily but, that he failed. Okay, but seriously, you, you're law enforcement and somebody comes to you with this story. Do you believe the UFO angle or yeah. do you believe like maybe these dudes ganged up and you killed guys, him? You guys, what, he dropped a tree on you or nearly killed you, so you just took him out in the woods. Yeah, Maybe he got a bonus and you offed him to steal it or something. <laughs> so. Yeah, the, the Walton story, because of the movie, I think the Fire in the Sky mm-hmm. is the name of the movie. I, again, I've never seen it. I think I've seen bits and pieces of it. I know you have the iconic poster scene with him caught in the light and all that. Yeah, he, he became quite a big deal for a while there. And like I said, probably, arguably, probably more well-known than even The Hills at that point. Because I believe I knew of Travis Walton before I knew of The Hills. So, Well, here he was still on the Joe Rogan podcast. And I mean, that's 2005-ish, yeah. I think, that, that I that I saw that. So, I'm kind of celebrity, if you will. Well, in, in those circles, definitely. I would put him up there with like Patterson Gimlin in the Bigfoot environment. Oh, you know, definitely. Like he's, he's one of those guys that. You know, he, he's sort of central to the mythology of it. Now, one of the first credited doctors and college in particular uh, of Harvard, uh, Dr. John E. Mack, uh, kind of sets the stage for something that had not been done. This was in the 1980s. He uh, ended up with an in-depth study done while he was there at Harvard University. And after working with 40 to 50 of these individuals, meaning those who came forward with, with stories or tales of UFO abduction, uh, Dr. John E. Mack, uh, a psychiatrist, stated in an interview, it became very evident to him that there was something very real going on. He has spent several years researching the alien abduction encounters in every aspect and sense of the manner. There seems to be several similarities to most of all of these, which are and he referenced this in particular, different people's reports from different areas, different walks of life. Uh, number one, they are often in rural areas or take place in rural areas. Number two, they often hear loud humming uh, noises or see very bright lights that seem to spotlight themselves or a vehicle that they're in. Number three, they feel if they are in a vehicle, they are no longer in control of it and it may lose entire power. Number four, they feel as if they're being lifted up in a light beam or transported somehow uh, from the ground into a flying vessel. Smaller groups state that they might actually be taken to a smaller ship and then that ship takes them to a larger ship. And number five, 80 to 90 percent then report what we're going to call as the grays, the little three foot gray skinned, large eyes, about three foot, uh, are the ones that do the scientific studies, the, the probing, the, you know, the research on them. Now, again, in the mythology of the alien abduction or even alien mythology in total, I believe the greys are typically just seen as a drone or like a worker class. Um, I think some stories even, ha- you know, that or, again, like I said, they are, I think one theory is that they're from the future where we have lost the ability to reproduce naturally. We, we just clone people and... So that's why the greys look inhuman, but still humanoid. But uh, yeah, I think in some stories, they, they are actually working for a different group of aliens. So uh, alien mythology is kind of Well, and we've crazy. alluded to this in some of the other podcasts, you know, of the UFOs and, and aliens. Are they from another world or are they time travelers? Or uh, dimensional. I, I've heard that. Multi-dimensional. Kind of yeah. So. Now, Dr. John Mack states very clearly, I realize what these people are saying, which I wholeheartedly believe sounds absurd in the world in which we are raised and told what should be possible. However, this is real and it is happening no matter what you may believe or think yourself. We have just closed ourselves off to considering it to be believable as it's easier for us to do that than to try to comprehend it. Now, when he was questioned uh, in an interview on 60 Minutes years later, he asked, uh, well, then how is this possible? And he's quick to reply, well, that's the real question, isn't it? He goes, we either have to shrink the phenomenon down to something that, as far as I'm 
concerned just will not fit, or we're going to have to stretch our notions open for new possibilities. Let the backlash begin. Yeah, I'm sure that guy didn't. Oh yeah. my gosh. Now, for a leading doctor or scientist making such a statement publicly did not go well and without ridicule, especially from Harvard University. One such mutual psychiatrist, a Dr. Paul McHugh from John Hopkins University in Baltimore, was very quick to take up the microphone and the camera and speak out. Now, Dr. Mack, he says, is a very intelligent man, but we have to draw a line somewhere by being open-minded or we become flabby. He goes on to say, we're quite worried about him as a colleague in this field, and we hope that he will gather his thoughts and come back to us and stop this nonsense. These are direct quotes. Wow. Uh, He states, uh, he and others are very embarrassed for Dr. Mack's enthusiasm in going too far as well as the man himself, but also how it reflects upon others within his circle. Now, this retaliation even went back to Dr. Mack's boss, uh, a lady by the name of Malcolm Nutman. Uh, She was interviewed, and when she was asked if he should be dismissed from Harvard, that's the elevation within days that this took, uh, she, she states, while she herself does not believe in little green or little gray men, nor three foot or five foot or nine foot tall, She does not feel that this is of any consequence for dismissal from Harvard. She goes on to say, Often when someone speaks out of great intelligence, there may be a portion that is speculated, but there's also that 50% of truth. It is that portion we should listen to and not be quick to judge, just because it doesn't seem believable at the moment in time. It is alluded that isn't this the true foundation block of learning? Now, our friend, Dr. Mack uh, of Harvard, states that these alien abductions occur. One thing very interesting he's noticed, often very different from his normal psychiatric patients. These people are from all walks of life, rich, poor, it doesn't seem to matter. However, almost all of them are stronger people, as I had kind of alluded to, both mentally but also physically, almost like the aliens are examining the fittest of humanity to make these interventions. In regards to critics, such as Dr. McHugh of John Hopkins, he goes on again to take the the more (laughs) backlash he's going to strike out here. He believes the people coming forward do truly believe what they're saying. He's he's not counteracting that at all. But people like Dr. Mack should be ashamed of himself for encouraging such behavior, for that is against what they should do. He explains it is no different than a patient that states they feel like they are fat when they are actually very thin, or one that says they feel like a woman burning a man's body. Now, warning, this next statement is taken from the 1980s, obviously not cultural correct, but he states, obviously these people are confused, and while they believe this, it is our job the psychiatrics, the doctors, not to embrace this at all, like they are judges of the truth, but instead we should help them. Wow. Many patients of Dr. Max have stated they were quite shocked, yet relieved when they reached out to him on what they were told. Many stated they were fully expecting to be told they were having a, a some type of a mental break, that they were dreaming of these events, and they were not true at all. Instead, his patients came away with new hope, and a type of understanding and ease of being understood by a doctor such as himself. Now, Dr. McHugh, our doubting Debbie of John Hopkins, (laughs) further continues, this is exactly what I'm talking about, and this is the embarrassment to our entire scientific community. When asked by the 60 Minutes interviewer, do you think it's possible Dr. Mack is possibly stumbled onto something breaking edge that's just never before been documented or understood? He pulls out a thick book written by Carl Jaspers titled General Psychopathology, written back in 1912. Dr. McHugh replies, quite the contrary. He is missing the essentials of our scientific proven world. This is not new. This is actually quite old, shaking the book in the cameraman's face, written in 1912. Patients have reported false memories for almost a century. The interview then asks, well, then... Do you believe what Dr. Mack is doing is anything bad or could cause damage? To which Dr. McHugh is very prompt to reply, absolutely. 
He is feeding the individuals false information, encouraging behavior that is derived from an obvious psychological problem, which are being masked by this definition and false hope. Now, ironically, later on, they go back and they interview Dr. Mack, and they're like, how do you feel about all this backlash? <laughs> I mean, and I only imagine this, this doctor, esteemed scholar of Harvard, Anybody comes to him and is like, no, you've went out on the edge here and you've put yourself out there. How do you feel when people don't believe you? In you? <laughs> I mean, how do you think? But Dr. Mack was questioned about what others were saying, and here's what he had to say. He goes, look, when I first heard these stories, I didn't believe them either. To a point, I did not react. I didn't write about it, much less speak about it for two years. I took a scientific approach. I gathered data by interviewing hundreds of different people claiming the same thing. I believe, based on that, the similarities of their stories from people from all over the world, there are too many coincidences. It's not like these people spoke to one another, much less knew one another. I did not set them down in a classroom to compare notes prior to interviewing them. Is it not what we are supposed to do to try to learn? Is it better to turn our heads or bury them in the sand and hope something we don't fully understand just won't exist and will go away if we don't acknowledge it a lot of good food for thought it's it's one of those things where the stories are are so similar it's hard to discount i've got one last story i'll share and this is probably a a lesser known i just happened to stumble across it the gentleman's name is calvin parker and this event took place near biloxi mississippi back in 1973 now calvin uh, was about 19 years old at the time frame and he was on a a fishing trip in uh, the pascagoula river area now since then as an older gentleman in today's age he's had a stroke and two heart attacks and he believes the time's finally come to share his story and he's actually even uh, i don't know if he's finished it but at the time of the interview he was writing a book now he stated as a teenager uh, he was with a friend a fishing buddy of his who was 42 uh, they entered to an area that uh, was posted no trespassing. The older man, 42-year-old Charles Hickson, had heard this area promise some great nighttime fishing. I'm assuming catfishing, you know, at, at nighttime. And upon approaching the water initially, uh, Calvin states that he could see strange, faint, round shapes of blue lights traveling across the water. He kind of looked up. It was kind of a semi-cloudy sky, so he wasn't sure exactly. But the first thing that went into his mind is the 19-year-old was, we're we're trespassing. Someone's got spotlights on us, and they're coming to arrest us and drag us away. They continued on. They decided, you know, nobody's coming for us. So they they went out to uh, the area of, of the bank where they started fishing. And a very bright light suddenly blinded uh, this man, or both of the men. When they were able to kind of struggle to see again, uh, Calvin reports what he described as three alien-like beings. Now, these are slightly different variations. That's why I thought the story was interesting. They were suspended, if you will, in this light beam coming from a ship or a vessel above them, and they were moving towards them. While they were only about four foot, he does his best to describe them as stocky and stout, almost like that of football players wearing full pads. Uh, He said they did move very mechanical-like, not human-like at all. Within seconds, he said these creatures beamed down. Two of them were on the adult man, the 42-year-old, and the one uh, grabbed Calvin, the younger 19-year-old, and pulled them to the ground. He stated that they felt immediately very relaxed and become paralyzed these creatures aliens whatever you want to call them then took them by means of floating up on the light beams into a medical lab of sorts he assumed as what he describes it as a spaceship he stated that one of the beings that brought him into the room laid him on a medical like table and then kind of backed away almost out of his vision Shortly after that, an object about the size he described as a deck of cards came down out of the ceiling and began to hover first directly above his face, above his nose, but then to start traveling across his face, stopping and making clicking noises at various points on the forehead, right-hand side, left-hand side, and eventually the back of the skull. 
He said the small probing object then returned back up into the ceiling. When he noticed a smaller, more petite, he assumed a female creature, then walked up to him and pinched him on the cheek. She then lifted her hands, and he said, I was able to see, again, being paralyzed, he said my point of vision was very limited, but she had very long fingers, like 12 inch long, very distorted. Says she then stuck one of these down his throat, uh, back around the tonsil area, was probing around, then began to push this long finger up through his nasal passages, where he began to cough and, and hack, and he said first felt pain. And he got very, of course, afraid and scared, choking. Um, He states when that occurred, that panic, the female-like creature stopped, looked at him in the eyes, and while did not speak words, he heard her say, don't be afraid. And he believes then he either passed out or was sedated to a point uh, and he couldn't remember anything more. That is until the aliens lowered them gently from the spaceship back down on the same bank where they had been previously. He does remember floating in the light beam with these, again, stocky, mechanical-like creatures as they were laying them back down on the beach. All pretty creepy. All, you know, how how do you explain this? So he says the two gentlemen kind of regained their consciousness, rolled, rolled over to look at each other. Did you just experience what I did? You know, kind of compared stories. And yes, they both had similar stories. And the men were just like frozen in fear. They, they discussed never telling anyone about it because they, they were trespassing after all. And they were afraid, you know, to get the law involved would be bad. But finally, Charles Hickson, the 42 year old said, we have to tell someone. So they left and called the local Jackson County Sheriff's office. And he said, and this is his quote, you are not going to believe this, but something just happened. We were taken by aliens. And he said immediately he heard the sheriff's dispatcher burst out and laughing on the other side of the phone. Uh, The sheriff's office obviously had two choices. Dismiss them as a prank call uh, or have them come in for questioning. And the sheriff decided to do the latter, but on one condition. They hit a tape recorder inside the interrogation room prior to the men coming in. And his hopes... Okay, I think I have heard this. At first, I didn't recognize this, but I remember this part. I remember what you're about to say. Okay. He decided to kind of do both. He, he felt it was a prank, but he hid a tape recorder inside, and his hopes was he would be able to hear the men coaching each other on what to say or, you know, basically staging the whole prank. Corroborating their stories. Yes, yes. Well, it was those recordings that actually helped prove their case. The men were recorded being very apparently shaken and scared. The older Hickson stated, In his words, I am ready to get this over with. He goes, I want to go home and take some pills for my nerves. (laughs) The younger man, Calvin uh, Parker, stated he hoped he could just get some sleep because it had shaken him so much he wasn't sure if he was even going to be able to sleep for several days. Along with several other statements that the sheriff did not reveal for what would become an ongoing case, the men would eventually go go to pass lie detector tests, polygraphs, passed in flying colors, This led to then a frenzy of various doctors and scientists that would continue to perform tests, some under hypnosis, and all agreed on one thing. Something very frightening had occurred to both of these men, and it could not be explained. The next was a little interesting, but it took such a a clinch in the local area that the two were taken to a nearby Kessler Air Force Base to be tested for radioactivity. Now, I couldn't find where it said definitively they were or weren't, but I did find in one reference they were kept there for several days. So you can read into that what you'd like. They drew sketches of the aliens and the craft individually early on, and they both had almost identical references. The aliens were, again, described four to five foot tall, bulky, muscle-like, but moving mechanical. And then, of course, the female-style, more petite, long-fingered version as well. The craft was described as 8 to 10 foot in length with two large portal-like eyes, and the shape was almost like that of a mix of a turtle with a manta ray. It actually had a fin, a small tail, but these two big windows almost look like eyes, but more of a roundish body like that of a, a tortoise shell. The older gentleman actually wrote a book uh, shortly thereafter, but Calvin 
was not impressed with the limelight, the ridicule. So until recently, he had decided he basically just wanted to be left out of it. But again, after suffering a stroke and two heart attacks, you know, now I'm, I'm guessing he's late 70s, early 80s. He has decided to write his own book and his own version. The 42-year-old fr- uh, fishing buddy of his actually passed away, I believe it was in 2002 or 2004. Uh, and he, he felt, I, I wish I would have done this sooner for him because he feels like he kind of left the story and all the burden to the older friend gentleman. But he goes, I want to pay that tribute because what happened to us that night changed us forever. Now, in case you're wondering, and I know, I know it's in your head, Eric, you're definitely wondering this. It is possible to buy alien abduction insurance. You're kidding. Was first offered by the St. Lawrence Agency in Altamont Springs, Florida. That makes sense, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's at least one company in England that has sold over 30,000 alien abduction policies in its lifetime. There is a lot of UFO phenomenon in England and, and overseas. I will so, say that. Now, why would aliens be abducting us? What are the reasons? Well, obviously to seek out a stronger intelligence. Yeah. <laughs> one of the theories is, of course, that our government has made an arrangement with the aliens. And in exchange for advanced technology, they are allowed to abduct people and uh, cattle and whatnot. Uh, We've never talked about cattle mutilations, but I know the human mutilation is actually something that's out there and is apparently on the rise is my understanding. So it's a known thing. Or they're traveling millions of miles, millions and millions upon billions of miles, you know, light years from other planets to come here and, uh, yeah, a little probe up the butt and just see what they can learn that way. Anal probing. Again, I would think there'd be better ways to figure out how we work. But, you know, it used to be that the idea was that it was just, you know, trailer park folks or folks out, you know, country bumpkin types. But even now with, like, the proliferation of of video equipment, everybody essentially carries a video recorder in their pocket. Yep. Like, why don't we have more evidence for these things? Why are they being seen? But the fact of the matter is there's plenty of video evidence out there. All over. Can you trust it? There you go. With the with Photoshop for pictures. Manipulation. Video manipulation. I've seen plenty of videos where I looked at them and I'm like, 100%, that's BS. But I've seen others where it's like, I this don't know. This can't be true. Uh, yeah, as, it's as, so realistic looking. a matter of fact, without going into a whole lot of detail, you and I had uh, someone in the shop one day while we were talking and he was showing us video oh, on yes. his phone. Yes. And I'm not going to name names or anything because I don't want to out anybody who doesn't want to be outed. But. You know, and it was like, it was totally believable to look at the phone and go, okay, this isn't manipulated. This is raw footage of some unexplainable thing. Yes. Now, again, alien visitors from another planet, time travelers from the future, multidimensional, you know, dimension hopping entities, whatever the aliens, quote unquote, are. I mean, we don't have the answers at this point. The government's getting ever closer to revealing, at least they're acknowledging that there are UFOs that they don't understand. That, that can't possibly be of, of you know, and have known, known about origin. it for decades. Yeah. Um, they just passed a law, an act through Congress that makes it illegal to prosecute whistleblowers for UFO reports. And apparently they've started a new plant, new organization, new subdivision, whatever it is, to investigate alien, you know, alien craft. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alaska has a similar, uh, England has one. I mean, they've been taking it very serious for many, yeah. many years. So here's the hoping you don't get probed, right? <laughs> I mean, it's at least if they're going to, if they're going to abduct me, I want Boas's deal more than the, you know, Barney and, and, and slather me with Vaseline and put in some <laughs> animated cat looking creature with yeah, me or something. Send yeah. some hottie in there. I don't want to be probed. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed yet another example of a tale that you'll find on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Let's be watching for those aliens out there. Yeah, watch the skies. But the fedu- <laughs> the foot <fedu-> the <laughs> But the phenomenon of alien abduction has been documented. Bill, I mean this most affectionately, but you've been Eric. That that is the longest opening <laughs> I have ever heard you give. <laughs> I like it. I dig it. Rub off on each other, right? That's right. That's right. So he's strongly attacked. So he's strongly attracted or attacked by her. (laughs) So. We'd like to give a shout out to our 
first uh, paying sponsor, Raven's Loft. That's our family shop here located in uh, Lebanon, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, vinyl records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for, again, supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in, kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, (laughs) using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, and I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.